Okay, and welcome back to Fast Ship Performance. There, my name is Tim Davies. I did a podcast yesterday on uh, the into an accident investigation into a crash of an airplane that belonged to the Red Arrows back on the 20th of March, 2018. Now, it got a bit ranty, and it wasn't ranty as such. It was just the way I was talking was quite fast. I listened back whilst I was driving this morning, and I found it quite hard to understand a lot of the technical terms of what I was saying. And also, I was pretty angry at elements of the service where I had done a service inquiry back in 2011 and I felt that it hadn't really been listened to or we were doing the same things again and again and again. And what we were doing in the service, I'm not in the service anymore, in the Royal Air Force, is they were saying, yeah, we're going to take count of this and we're going to do things to make sure it doesn't happen again. And those things have been said back in 2011 when Sean Cunningham was killed on the team, back in 2011 again when John Eggins was killed on the team. That's the inquiry I did. And they were also said back in 2010 when they lost an aircraft, uh, Dave Montenegro and Mikey Ling. And they were also said back in 2000, ah, it goes back, 2008, I believe, when a jet was delivered to Cranwell and, and crashed. But so all these things, we come up with the same thing again. And there's no one ever just saying, why don't you take a year's break Red Arrows, why don't you stop for a year? And what we'll do is we'll just have a year off uh, because I think Red Bull did this recently. I think they stopped for a year because they were a bit dangerous. Uh, and they took a year out. They said, we're just going to calm it down. And that's what I'd like to see with the Reds. I'd like to have a full year where they stop flying and they go, you know what? We've got some internal insurance issues and we're going to go through everything we have and we're going to go from being the worst and the most dangerous squadron in the Royal Air Force, which is that's a correct statement, by the way. They are the most dangerous squadron in the Royal Air Force. They've had more accidents over the last decade than any other squadron in any military in the UK. I think they've had more accidents than any other display team in the world over the last... Well, how do you quantify that as a decade? But if you look at other display teams, they're not having the uh, accidents that the Reds are having. And all these accidents, by the way, aren't necessarily in the display at all. Um, there might be an display practice like Michael Ling and Dave Montenegro's was back in 2010. Those lessons have been learned. The uh, the fatalities that are happening are to do with stuff outside of the display. So the baseline element of what you're doing. Now, we can talk about what happened. Uh, we can talk about then uh, why the report says it happened. And I pretty much agree with everything in the report here. Uh, having done one of these reports already, they're just painfully accurate painfully truthful truthful it just i've I've read nothing in this report uh, that i i would say they're trying to cover anything up there's a lot of stuff that's been redacted but that's more to do with the the personal state of the pilot i think it was and i understand why that's not in here but i read the entire report agree with every single thing in it it's just again it seems to be yeah we've had this accident we put a report out so ops are normal everything's fine let's crack on guys and again, it's just a bit upsetting when you read that again and again and again. So let's not go into as much detail as you went in for my rant. I might leave it up, my rant, or I might take it down. So the service inquiry, an aircraft crashed basically at Valley in March last year, uh, killed the rear occupant, and the pilot ejected very, very late and survived. Actually crashed onto the main runway, runway 3-1 at RF Valley at about half past one in the afternoon of an otherwise quite pleasant flying day. Um, the wind was seven knots down the strip, so 3107 knots. And at height, of course, uh, it was coming from the north at about 15 knots. So again, a really nice um, flying day there to be getting able. The thing is, the pilot come across from 
Scampton. He was uh, Red 3 in the team, new to the team. And uh, he was going to come across to RF Valley where the simulator is and do some simula- do a simulator, an emergency simulator. And also he was going to get some continuation training or some general handling practice on the way there and on the way back. And also it was a bit of a shakedown sortie for a member of the circus, uh, which is one of uh, the, they've got about 85 engineers and 10 of those guys fly with the team so they can turn the jet when they first go to a display. And this was the first time this guy had been in a Red Arrows Hawk. Uh, and he hadn't actually done the required simulator that he needed so he could identify things. So there were failings in that, fine. And the report goes into that. The key for the events, which we'll come down to now, uh, is, here we go. So it's a narrative. So I'm going through the report as well. And if you do type in service inquiry XX204, you'll find the report and you can go through it. And this is in the narrative section. Of events and uh, what's happened is Red 3, quite new to the team, he's done a bit of continuation training when he's first started on there, which you can look at general handling, and then rapidly they've gone into a display workup. And out of 111 hours on the uh, on the Red Arrows so far, I think 11 of those were for general handling practice. And the general handling, what is that, you ask? And I get this, and as I used an example in the last podcast, the reason that we have to do these elementary basic events is that when you go to say you're a race car driver um, this is what I said in the last one and you're really good at racing cars around a circuit well in order for me to let you go and race that car at a circuit I have to make sure that you are able to maybe turn left and right maybe stop at a stop sign maybe go around and round about those kind of things those would be your sort of basic currencies and then like the red arrows have that display you know you racing around a racetrack would be what you did in effect so um, it's kind of making sure that Lewis Hamilton can still if he's going to drive his own race car to the circuit, he has to be able to know how to drive on normal roads. And so what Red 3 was practicing were those basic core skills, okay, those fundamental core skills. That's what he was intending to do. So he, uh, as I said, flew across from Scampton, did his practice some of those things on the way, was well, a bit of a transit, did his sim and got on the airplane and uh, went and did this particular flight, which ended in uh, transit only after a few minutes, really, because he gets airborne, Nice flying day, and as he's in the climb, he's going for what's called a practice engine failure after takeoff. He starts a right turn, and then very early on, he closes the throttle, which when I saw the heights and parameters that he did that at, I remember thinking he's going to struggle because he's only about 500 feet. He's about 280 knots in a right-hand turn, and uh, he's got to go the whole way downwind and tip in finals and try and get that back, and he's heavy. He's 5.6 tonnes of airplanes, uh, and it's a long way to go. So his chance of success is not that great. Just drinking some tea there. Right, so what happens is he gets uh, downwind. He's a bit tight to the runway. He hasn't really taken in the uh, the crosswind that's blowing him into the runway, which means that when he tips in finals, he's only about 1,000 feet and he's got no power in the aircraft. Now, normally we tip in finals at 1,000 feet, but we'd have 80% power set from the engine, but he's at idle. And then he gets himself tight, he puts his gear down, he travels his flaps, and we think he's confused at this point, and uh, what happens if you think he blows them down on the emergency systems also. Then air traffic asks him, uh, they they say, as he's approaching his 300 foot point, they say, check your gear. He looks back inside, and what's probably happened is he's noticed the fact that he's blown these systems down, it's confused him. He's gone to recover the aircraft, uh, well above the 300 feet, he should recover at 300 feet, he recovers 360 feet, but he's got a bit of a rate of descent on and he's in this turn, and the aircraft stalls, drops a wing, he struggles to get it back, um, and it uh, impacts the runway. He manages to eject about half a second before. So that really is the official uh, narrative. Now, in the last podcast, I went into some huge detail about all these things, and really, to be honest, 
I'm not speaking to the Air Force uh, or pilots about this. I'm speaking to people that have asked me to do this. And I didn't really want to do this service inquiry thing. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I realized that what happens is you leave the service and there are still some people in a position you were in a decade ago uh, and they just do not have the clarity or the foresight or the hindsight or anything to see what's happening. And you do. And this is why you get people ranting on some of these online forums. You know, it wasn't like that in my day and all this kind of stuff because the truth is it probably was, but you're looking at it with the gift of hindsight. And that's all I'm doing. So it really just makes me uh, just a bit angry. So I didn't really want to do it, to be honest. Now, what it's saying was we don't know whether he ever called for the engineer to eject in the rear because of the fact there wasn't a cockpit voice recorder fitted. Now, there is an accident date recorder fitted to the aircraft. And forever, every report has always said fit the fit a cockpit voice recorder to it. My report said the same thing, and they never have done. And they're never going to. It recommends that one is fitted. Probably won't ever happen. I'm scrolling through this now, guys. So they had a lot of evidence that they could go over uh, in this. I had a whole world of stuff. Um, interviews with people and interviews with the pilot. Everything. And they did. So I'm not going to go over, again, really, the actual manoeuvre itself. But they did go and speak. And they looked at the basic training requirements, which are the elementary things that you need. And they looked at the same thing for everyone flying a Hawk T1 in the UK, which was the Royal Air Force Aerobatics Team, 100 Squadron and 736 Naval Air Squadron. All fly Hawk T1s. Now, one of the big problems with this is that the Royal Air Force Aerobatics Team, I'd call, I'd call them the Red Arrows, it's easier. The Red Arrows had not mandated which of the three PFLs you had to do every month or every two months. The other two squadrons did. They said there's three variations of what happened with Red 3, the, the Pafato or the PFL. There's a visual PFL, a visual practice force landing, where you fly high above the airfield at about 4,500 feet. Then you parallel the runway down about 2,500 feet. Then you turn and you land on the runway. Visual force landing. Visual practice force landing. Then there's the radar PFL, normally flown at night or in cloud. And then there's the practice engine failure after takeoff or the Pafato, which is what Dave Stark was flying. Now, 100 Squadron and 736 say that you need to practice each one of those three. 100 Squadron say every month and 736 say every two months. The Red Arrows have not mandated that. What they did is you need to fly any one of them, it doesn't matter, every 90 days. So the currency for that is even less than the other squadrons. And it doesn't say which one. So the problem with this, of course, is that you could say that you've practiced a visual force landing, a visual practice force landing, and you've practiced that every 90 days. So you might have done those four in a year, but you've never done a radar PFL and you haven't done a practice engine failure after takeoff at all. Uh, and you could be three years on the Red Arrows without practicing two of those evolutions. You could just practice the same one. Uh, that's the issue with this. And that's what the service inquiry panel found. And uh, that was pretty negligent here. And um, they should have really been making sure that the pilots have practiced one of those or every single one of those um, every single 30 or 60 days and they didn't. Even 90 days, I couldn't care less. If I was on the team, 90 would seem a lot, but they're all specialists on the aircraft anyway. None of them have initiated guys. Um, then again, they are specialists on 100 Squadron and 736. And one of the things that's quite interesting to note here is the, the pilot of Red 3, Red 3 himself, sorry, the pilot of the aircraft, had come from 100 Squadron, and 100 Squadron's activities are very diverse, they're very undermanned, same with 736, uh, and they haven't had an accident for a very long time, both those squadrons, and yet the Reds continue to have these accidents. And I don't call them accidents, of course, we know they're incidents, because an accident is something that can't be foreseen, and of course all these all these accidents the Reds have can be foreseen, because they were, because I did, I foresaw them back in 2011. Right, so what is it? 
Uh, Red 3 was current in all his basic training requirements. He was current, but he wasn't competent. Now, my argument being, if I had his lack of competency or lack of currency in the particular flight profile Red 3 was flying, I probably would have also crashed that airplane, is what I'm saying. Any one of my men, when I was at Valley, if if I'd if they'd had that lack of currency that he had, would have probably made the same mistake, all right? There's nothing on the airplane that tells you it is going to stall. On the Hawk T1 has nothing, okay? Now, you're taught to recognize it from a different kind of flight profile, subtly different, but uh, you just don't know. And when you're configured like he was with the gear and the flap down, there's no real indication until you stall. And when you stall, it's quite violent. And as this guy, Dave Stark, found out, it was a wing drop, uh, which he tried to recover from, um, high rate of descent and uh, managed to restall it again on the recovery, which is understandable because you haven't got much energy in the aircraft at this point uh, and it impacted the ground. And that would happen to me or anyone. There's no stall warner. There's no ground proximity warning system. There's no alpha warner. There's nothing, no stick shaker. It's an old airplane that we're still flying and we still crash it. And then we write reports on it to say we're going to make it different next time. So the panel noted that there was a lack of this training that this guy was getting. Now, I know Dave Stark. I haven't spoken to him. I haven't spoken to the team. He's a good guy. Very, very talented pilot. Two seconds on, Dave flew with him on 2-8 Squadron. He was an A2 Central Flying School accredited qualified flying instructor on the Hawk T1. A well-respected guy. Really great guy to have on the squadron. And that's why it's a shame because it looks like the Red Arrows abandoned him after this. They brought another pilot back in. Um, back into the team and it, I doubt Dave will ever get back on the team again which is a real shame because he's a great guy and it, it looks like the team just let him go and that I think was why I was a bit upset when I did and I wasn't upset recording the podcast yesterday but I was a bit like how is this still happening it's like 2019 this should not be happening now the Royal Air Force is undermanned especially in air safety roles my main message here really is that the Royal Air Force prioritizes the Red Arrows flying display over the flight safety. Uh, and that's just, that's truth. We can prove that in a minute, actually, when we look down over um, the, the person responsible for the risk to life. That person is um, the commandant of Central Flying School, who's a nice guy. He was responsible at the time. And what happened, I'm trying to find the bit where he talks about this. They had uh, a problem with the the air safety management of the Red Arrows insofar as they didn't really have anyone to put in there. Um, they were kind of, they were lacking. They were like, okay, we, we've, we're going to have to kind of gap this. And they were trying to do it as best they could. But then what the, what this guy did, and it's a really sensible thing to do, is he said, I'm going to make someone in Central Flying School responsible for looking after the air safety of the Red Arrows. And he did. And it was actually an ex-Red Arrow pilot himself. That's, he's a good guy. And he uh, did his best to try and make sure he was looking after these things. But then what happened is when the accident happened, that guy himself was dragged back into the team. What should have happened probably is they, the Reds should have probably flown with seven aircraft that year as opposed to nine. Um, so there's a guy who was responsible for the flight safety in the Red Arrows. There's a problem with flight safety in the Red Arrows. They have an accident and the guy responsible for flight safety is put back into the team so the team can fly with nine. They didn't take a year out. They didn't fly with seven. They actually removed the person responsible for flight safety and they put him back in the team as a pilot. And that's not great. However, what I will say is great is the person responsible for doing that then uh, reallocated some of the duties in Central Flying School to make sure uh, they were trying to look after the flight, uh, the flight safety of the Red Arrows as best they could. So 
the thing about it is as well, when I when I seen this accident and I, I get sent loads of pictures and stuff like that, I thought that Dave had messed up. And I've gone over it again and I, I looked at it and went, yeah, he's messed up. He's gone through his contract point is what I said. He never once went through his contract point intentionally. He The contract point is at 300 feet. There are five, six things you need. At 300 feet, as you're coming down, pointing at the runway, all happens quite fast. You have to have certain things in place in order to continue the profile beyond 300 feet. Dave was heavy, so he was never going to continue beyond 300 feet anyway, but you're trying to make that contract. And at 300 feet, you put the throttle forwards, the jet dishes below 300 feet, but then you climb away. So the aircraft landing gear has to be locked down, and it was on Dave's aircraft. Clearance to touch and go has been given by ATC. Um, and in this case, the clearance had been given um, by air traffic anyway, but he was never going to carry it onto, its, um, onto the runway. Down flap has been lowered or selected and traveling. And yeah, it was. Uh, it was actually down, I believe, but it could have just been traveling. That's, that's more than happy with that. The aircraft's heading has to be within 30 degrees of the runway heading. Yes, the angler bank was less than 45 degrees. No, it wasn't, but he was attempting to get it back. It was about 50 odd degrees. And the speed was between 150 and 170 knots. And he was back into 150, getting a bit slow, but he was doing everything he could to recover that. And then, uh, unfortunately, he's in a turn. Uh, he's pulling around the turn, a bit of a tightening wind, and the aircraft stalls in an approach configuration close to the ground. Any pilot will know that's a really bad place to be. And I've stalled twice in the finals turn. And once was, uh, well, both are at Mona, a relief landing field. And both uh, were, I think, above 500 feet. I was pulling quite aggressively. And there's a bang, bang, and a bit of a wing drop. Standard stall recovery straight away. And I managed to get away with it. But one thing I remember from both occasions, and they were years apart, I was solo on both occasions as well, was how quickly the ground came up at me. It was as if the jet had literally been dropped, like someone was holding it and let go of it. It was, it just sank. So I'm well aware of, of that feeling, um, although mine was higher than Dave's, luckily. The Reds practice engine failures from different points, but the whole point is to intercept that pattern at a point where you can intercept it and that is get on that finals turn before about 300 feet and that's what he was trying to do his energy was a bit low but fine because it doesn't matter if energy is low because that 300 foot point is a catch-all but if you're not configured you're not in a good state by 300 feet go around Dave realized this red three realized this by 360 something feet 65 feet and he was going around it's just then when the aircraft stalled could have happened to anyone genuinely especially for that uncurrent I'm wondering whether to keep the rant or whether to replace the rant with this. It wasn't a rant. It's just a talk fast. I, because I talk fast, unfortunately, sometimes I'm talking purposely slow now. But sometimes it just becomes hard to understand what I'm saying, especially when the terms are quite technical. Uh, I won't go into all the speeds and everything else he was at. But um, either way, he's got himself into a position that is recoverable. He's looking at the runway thinking... It doesn't seem to be working out, so I'm going to go around. It's just that he's still pulling in the turn, and then, unfortunately, the aircraft stalls. There was a note, a bit of guidance that came out in one of the aircrew manuals, uh, or there has a handling uh, manual. There's an aircrew manual, and I believe the handling manual, a little note came out just saying, look, guys, just out of interest, if you're going to conduct this manoeuvre, then when you're a beam the threshold, you might want to be about 1,400 feet. And if you're less than 1,400 feet, you're not going to make it, to be honest. So I wouldn't bother carrying on. Now, when that 1,400 feet was the maximum height uh, Red 3 actually reached downwind anyway. But from then on, he was ascending. And when he got to the point where 
the manual suggests that you should be at 1,400 feet, he was only at 1,000. So from then on, if he'd read that guidance note, which doesn't seem anyone had read it because no one has signed for it, there was no accountability of it. Um, if he'd read that, then it might have been he may have thrown away that approach then and gone off and done his own thing because you haven't got to get the, the, the approach in only one out of one out of two of these pfls are ever going to work anyway he's probably on current he probably knows that i just think he's been hounded for this and i don't see this as his fault I, you know I, I see this as an approach he's made an aircraft that probably shouldn't be flying anymore you wouldn't get that at service that aircraft into service today no one would accept an aircraft into service without um, the basic functionality of um, stall prevention or warning. And I know that because I was a requirements manager on the Hawk T1 when I was in the Royal Air Force a few years ago. And I was looking at methods of which we could put this stuff on. It's just not bloody happening, is it? And that's not going to be done now either. So it's saying that um, there was a guidance here. If Red 3 had been aware of the amended guidance for the minimum height of 1,400 feet, he may have terminated the exercise at the end of the downwind leg. Or may have initiated the finals turn earlier. Yeah. Um, so it was a contributory factor. Now, it also looks like what he's done. I'm trying to keep this to 30 minutes, guys. It also looks like what he's done um, is he's inadvertently pulled the emergency flap and gear. Now, once you do that, uh, once you push the buttons in and pull them, it's an emergency. So a bottle fires and it locks them all down. That means you can't get them back up again. It's not a drama because all you do is you fly around and you burn off fuel, you land. But for the engineers, it's a bit of a, a bit of an issue. And that aircraft would never have gone back to Scampton. It would have to stay at Valley uh, and it would have to get sorted out and then obviously ferried back there. It would be an embarrassment for him I've never heard of that being done before. Um, but you know what? When you're maxed out, which means you're very busy, you have significant cognitive overload, these things happen. And that day, Red 3 was just overloaded in this particular evolution. There's, there's bits in the report about fatigue and about the jobs he's doing. He's got five jobs on the squadron and about the fact that he doesn't feel like he can have a break ever. From, uh, from a debrief from one of the flights, they fly about three times a day. He'd like to have a break from after one of those flights to really gather his thoughts before the next one. That doesn't really happen. Um, so he's a bit busy. The whole Air Force is busy, right? Scrolling down, they, they analyze the store. And I'll try and explain this to you uh, in, a, in a way I explained it on the last podcast, and I'm probably going to remove that. The aircraft's in a turn. So any aircraft in a turn has to be pulling a certain amount of G because it has to keep the nose level. So any aircraft in a 60-degree turn is pulling 2G, okay? And that's just a fact, which means that if the stall speed straight and level of that aircraft is 100 knots, then when it's in that 2G turn, it's actually now about 141 knots because you take the root of the G you're being pulled or the root of the load on the airplane, you multiply it by the basic stall speed, and that's what you get. It's called a maneuver speed. Um, that's that's what it means. And so Dave's over about 51 degrees. So they worked out exactly what his stall speed should be. They calculated that the stall speed on one G flight was 111.5 knots. I think this must be, um, that would be straight and level clean. Oh no, straight and level flight. I don't think that's clean. I'm just having a look on this now. No, I think it's 111 knots. That makes sense. 111.5 knots configured. And then they went and trialed it with another aircraft. I've flown that other aircraft, 154. And the results were a bit optimistic, they say. Irrespective of that, they it stalled it a little bit higher with the baggage pod on. He had a baggage pod on. So they worked out the stall margin. They do this. They get deep into the analysis. And it's great. You've got to do it, really. Uh, and they worked out that um, the, the stall speed of the aircraft was pretty much the speed at which it stalled for the Angler Bank that it was in at the time. 
So yes, let's have a look. Two, one, four, so I've got one point five G. Yeah, exactly. So he's stored. It's predictable in maths, but in the aircraft, you would have no way of knowing because there isn't any pre-stored buffer as such when you're fully configured with downflap. Um, when you're a clean airplane, you'll get nibbling. The airflow will separate off the wing, off the top of the wing, and it does it um, partially as the center of pressure moves forward. But then that will be a turbulent flow that will hit your tailplane. Tailplane is connected to the control column in your hand, and that will move slightly. And that's um, part of uh, what we teach students about um, anticipating the stall. So it's slow and reducing airspeed, attitude increasing, buffet, instability, rate of descent, and the stick coming fully aft, and the nose still wanting to... Um, to drop sometimes uh, and that is really those uh, those things we tell students about now of course in the turn it's harder to find that because especially when you're configured in the finals term because you just don't have any way of getting that feel on the stick it doesn't really vibrate at all because the airflow separates in one violent movement um, because of the I could work it out for you on a whiteboard but the center pressure rushes forward separates the air and then that bang bang you feel normally is it, it just slamming off the tailplane bang bang like that uh, and that's what you feel through control column. And it's you're in a bad place. Standard stall recovery immediately, which Dave does. He's already got the, stick for, uh, the throttle fully forward anyway. Uh, and now he has to unload the control column as he's pointing at the ground, roll the aircraft and recover it. And he hasn't got time. In fact, I think they say he needs to be about another 50 foot higher for that to have worked. There's such a rate of descent on the aircraft. It's never going to happen for him. Uh, hits the secondary stall and then the aircraft hits the ground. He manages to get out just before that. The command ejection in the Hawk works from rear to front because it's a training aeroplane, which meant that the engineer would have been able to eject the pilot, but the pilot in the front can never eject the guy in the back. It's always been an issue, um, always been an issue in the aeroplane. When I was an instructor, uh, I used to fly passengers in the back, and depending on who the passenger was, it depended on whether I had the command eject up and on. Because of course, if I took a bird to the face and was unconscious, you'd want the guy in the back to be able to pull you out. The issue being, I can never fire that passenger out, and I always used to brief them, look, I'll call for you to eject, um, if I get time, I'll say eject, eject, eject. On the second eject, I am pulling the handle. So if you don't, if you, if you, you see me go or the cockpit fills a massive amount of black smoke, follow me out, okay? Follow me out um, because I can't get you out of the airplane. In Tornado, other things, it works differently. But in the Hawk, unfortunately, it's always rear to front. And I, I think there's a recommendation in here. I, I must admit, I, I missed it on the last podcast. I think there's a recommendation to have a look at that um, command eject system but they will never have a look at it. They'll never change it. It's too expensive. So that's probably a good time to talk about cost of life, I suppose. Um, we all have a cost of life. Uh, my life is worth something. Uh, what am I now? 45. Uh, my wife's life is worth something. A uh, kid's life is worth something. It's all about what you're going to bring to the country. In effect, the government decides cost of life and how much tax you're paying or what education you have or how old you are or what kind of burden you're going to be on the state. Or you know, It's just one of those things. It has to come down to a financial argument. Now, this is the thing. My sister, uh, she's very left-leaning, I guess is the best word. I've got two sisters and my older sister. And when I talk about this, uh, she will say it shouldn't be that. It should be a moral argument. And I'm saying, well, yes, but who judges those morals? You know, when you talk finance, when you talk cost, it's finite. You can put a line there. When you have a committee deciding who's worth more and who's worth less. We're going to disagree, aren't we? I mean, a woman might say a woman's life's worth more because they, they bring kids into the world. And a man might say, yeah, but those kids are going to cost money. But the woman will say, well, but the kids are also going to earn money and then pay more taxes. And the man might say, well, I can go out and work full time and pay more taxes. And you see the problem we're getting. So what the government does, it comes up and says, well, if you're 
um, a man in his 20s and you're able-bodied, you have this many years of work ahead of you, therefore you have a, we can quantify the value of your life as such. Now, what they, they also do this with pilots, of course. That aircraft would have been worth about £330,000, not much. 300000 something like that, not much money. It's an old aeroplane. John Bayliss's life would be worth significantly more because, of course, he is working, he's paying taxes, um, he's not a burden to the state. This was the engineer that died in the back, sorry, John Bayliss. Um, so uh, he, is, he has, a, he has a, a value, okay? He has a tangible value of what his life is worth. The government know that. And they also know how much it's going to cost to retrofit all these devices onto this aeroplane. If you have to put a stall warner and a moving map and a head-up display, command eject, you have to work out, that's going to be a very costly evolution to do to every single Hawk T1 that's flying in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's going to cost a finite amount of money. Let's put a cost on it, £20 million, let's say. Let, and this is that's a rubbish figure, guys, because... In all honesty, it's going to cost a lot more. Um, it's a, a huge amount of design work involved, a huge amount of work to actually do it involved, and you've got to get the jets all through servicing. And the jet's going out of service. It was going to go out of service in 2020, which is why it wasn't done, and then it was going to go out of service in 2030, I think it is now. So as I said, by the time you do the design work, the, the build and engineering work, and you get it back on the line, what's happened? Well, the jet now has got another couple of years the government know this, the Ministry of Defence know this, and they're like, you know what, can we hold the risk? And they have been holding the risk uh, of not having these devices for a very long time. Uh, it's understandable. You know, we can be critical, but when I talk about the fatalities that I investigated or I was involved with, um, to be honest, what, and this is an awful thing to say, but it's a truthful thing to say, is it's easier to kill, a, it's easier to have another fatality in the aeroplane. It's, it's less cost to UK PLC to kill another red pilot or engineer than it is to get the money together to modify these airplanes. Because the payout, I believe for, um, I know what it was for John Egging, uh, roughly, I know what it was, and it's around about a quarter million pound, I think is what you pay out, uh, plus pension, all that kind of stuff, widow's pension. But that's nothing in comparison to millions and millions of pounds to modify these airplanes. So it just, this is what I try to explain to my sister. It's like, I'm not saying it's right, um, no one would say it's right. No one say it's moralistically right. But you have to have some brackets and some guidance and some boundaries on these things. Else, everything could be modified, couldn't it? Um, we could say that, well, what if there was smoking, what if there was a bomb on the underground and it was all going to be smoke and stuff like that? Let's make sure we have gas masks on every single tube train just in case. Oh, how expensive would that be on the off chance it was going to happen? So you have a risk register and you balance up these risks and you make them as, as low as reasonably possible and tolerable. And there's figures you place into that. And as low as reasonably practical means the amount of money I'd have to put in to go any further with this risk is, in effect, not worth it. It's just ridiculous. And that's why, at the moment, they're saying that the, the, the risk to life in the Red Arrows is a LARP and tolerable. So what I'm saying is you can continue to expect accidents in this particular squadron, which is the most unsafe squadron in the Royal Air Force, the most unsafe squadron in the country of any squadron. They've had more accidents than any other squadron's had, I think more so than any other flying display team in the world. I haven't done that math, so. Uh, and what they're going to do is another recommendation, for example, is... Um, Air Officer Commanding 22 Group should investigate the incorporation of an artificial stall warner capability in the Hawk T1 to provide sufficient warning to pilots during low-speed, low-altitude manoeuvring. And I could ask, as I said on the last podcast, uh, I could ask 100 pilots, do you think that's going to be done? And 100 pilots would say no. 
No, that's, not, that's never going to be done. It never has been done in 45 years of the aircraft. It's like the cockpit voice recorder that the aircraft doesn't have. It will never have one. It's too expensive to put it in. We all know that. It's just what it is. Um, unfortunately, it just is what it is. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, high angle of bank. Yeah, fine. So he was, at, he was in contract pretty much apart from bank angle, but they could have sorted it out. And the timing of this is horrific. So by the time he decides to go around and put, this, put the, the throttle forwards, uh, he has about four and a half seconds before impacting the ground and he's in a stalled condition. So I do not hold this guy responsible for this. I think anyone with the level of currency that he had could have done the same thing. And I think that's why I was pretty, I wasn't angry. I just get, I, you know, I've read reports now for this. I've gone back to 2008 when Dave Firth Wigglesworth crashed his airplane at Cranwell without putting the gear down. That was, I believe, a Red Arrows aircraft being delivered to Cranwell. That's not part of the Reds team, though, that won't feature on any accident. In fact, the previous fatality before all this was 1988. Um, so from 1988 all the way up to 2010, when Mikey Ling ejected after hitting Dave Montenegro, or vice versa, however you want to read that one, uh, they the Reds had done really well. Um, and in fact, that was... That was a crash. So the first fatality was actually John Eggins in 2011. So from 1988 to 2011, the Reds hadn't had fatality. So all this time, I do the maths for me on that one. I'm not going to do it publicly, but it's like 20 odd years, whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, or 30 odd years. They they haven't had uh, a, a fatality. And then they had two in the space of seven weeks with Sean Cunningham. And now they've had another one about seven years later. So what was different between those 30 year gap and, and, and this seven year gap? And that's what I'm saying. Um, maybe, you know, has anything changed? Well, Obviously, something's changed. We're probably telling ourselves we're being safer, but we're probably not actually being safer. There's things about how the Air Officer Commanding of 22 Group should revise manoeuvring limitations. Well, of course he bloody should. But I mean, we should have done that 10 years ago. And it's everyone knows it anyway. It's just probably wasn't ever written down. Um, and it needs to be written down. He was very busy, had five secondary duties. There's a lot of blacked out stuff now about his operating day and his tempo. Um, it says here... The panel recognised a combination of flying and secondary duties resulted in a busy yet focused working environment. By nature, Red 3 was, and then it's all blanked out. So we don't get to know his state. And I haven't spoken to Dave about this or the team about this. I don't. I did speak to the Director of Flying Training recently and about flying again. And I, I was just trying to say, look, it needs to be, you need to prove to me that it's safe. You can't, of course. What what how do you how do you say you're safe? You know, you can't. So um but there seems to be a bit of distraction in the cockpit as well, because as I said, Red 3 seems to have reached for the emergency gear, emergency flap, which was unnecessary because he's selected the gear and flap down on the normal systems. He seemed to have selected the emergency switches, and that would have been quite confusing because he'd be thinking, why have I done that? Because uh, now the jet has to stay at Valley. So it says about reason that he may have done it, and it's all about cognitive overload, as we know, and I think we've covered that. But my key here, really, for people that aren't flying airplanes, is if you mess something up, you've got to put it behind you for the, that period. And you can think about it later, but just for the moment, put it behind you, let it go, and then you can uh, land the jet or do whatever you're doing. And you can go, you know what, let's think about why I did that. On Patreon, if you're on the Patreon, I think it's about $12 a month. I will cover this as a whiteboard brief. and I'm going to draw diagrams of um, all that sort of thing about why this happened, what his pattern was. So you'll get that. And I'm going to bring that back to lessons um, in life as well about putting things behind you and moving on and then addressing them later. Lastly, let's find some more red writing. Um, okay. 
So we've got some more down here, and this talks about their core roles, which is, this is one of the big issues with the Royal Air Force Aerobatics team. Their core role is representing and showcasing the skills and values of the Royal Air Force. Now, the values of the Royal Air Force are respect, integrity, service, and excellence. And here you've got the squadron that everyone in the Royal Air Force knows is the most failing squadron. Uh, everyone, uh, it is. Um, people still want to join it because they want to be a Red Arrow, but a lot of people don't. And I knew people that apply for the team that withdrew their applications even before this uh, this one, they they put in for it. They visited the team. The team, what's the best way of saying this? Um, they are very good pilots individually. That's why they're selected. But the team dynamic can be difficult sometimes. And I think what happens is uh, in the third year, especially guys are doing the same thing for two years, but it's a busy team and they've got their own duties. So on a squadron, normal squadron, you might have twice as many people as this, but on this squadron, you've got nine. In fact, you've got 10 as well, but generally you've got nine. Um, you've obviously got Red 10 who, who helps out. Um, but while they were doing all the duties themselves here, so it's busy time. This guy had five secondary duties. My argument is... Why don't you just let the team do what they do best, which is practicing for the displays. Have someone else in there to look after uh, what was what was his duties here. Red 3 was, um, his duties were, I think he was like um, looking after the planning system, the GPS. He was looking after um, the rations, I believe it was. And he had another couple of duties. And so he was busy anyway. There was no downtime for him. And there needs to be. It's like with athletes, professional athletes, just get them to be athletes. Professional sportsmen, Take care of everything else they do. Go look at what this is. I mean, this is what's so frustrating. It's like you should be watching what these guys are eating, how much they're sleeping. Look after their mental health, you know. Um, look after their nutrition, you know, everything. It's Look after their exercise. Tell them when they go to the gym. Monitor them. Actively get someone working out with them. It's fucking gashed. It's just gashed. And it's just gashed because it always has been gashed. Now, the argument being is get other people on the squadron to look after the flight safety. Get other people on the squadron to look after the rations. And the truth is what the Royal Air Force would do is turn around and say, we do not have those people. And the truth is they do not have those people. So you've, so my, my point is, when does it end then? Does it end with another accident where you start really looking at manning this squadron properly and taking all the pressures off this bunch of guys that is all men at the moment saying, look, What's prior, how, do we, how do we look after this squadron as best as we can? Think Dave Brailsford with Team Sky. He looked at the aggregation of marginal gains. He looked at what 0.1%, when they all add up, you know, if you get all those 0.1% up, if you manage to just those 1%, you can actually make a huge difference. He even managed to um, phone the parents of people that were cycling in Team Sky and say, I want you to go and look at the pillow that this cyclist is, is using, and I want you to tell me where I can buy the exact same pillow. So when these guys then are on the road and they're, they're in hotels, he, he gives them their own pillow from home, literally, like the same one. So now you're just taking out like a slightly uncomfortable night's sleep. None of this stuff is carried across to the team, okay? None of it. They're still expected to go and do all these secondary duties. They've got to keep up all their fitness tests, everything they've got to do, and yet they've got to, they've got to put up these displays every year I mean, you can see how intense this is, whereas there was a real opportunity after this accident to stop, literally cancel the display season, um, and they didn't do it because they were going to go to North America the following year, this year, so they wanted to get the display in. But you could argue, well, hang on, let's let's say it for what it is now. Big banner in the sky. Um, the Red Arrows display is more important than flight safety. And that's just, why would you not say that? Because it's true. So flight safety takes a back seat. I don't see any reason why 
that's a bad thing to say. And then, of course, uh, goes into the air safety management. It criticizes the use of bow ties. At least they're using bow ties um, for their safety model, I say. And when I did my investigation into them, they had done risk analysis of all their display maneuvers and it was solid. It was so, so good. They just hadn't risk analyzed the um, the brakes that they do, the, the end of the display when they come to land. And then they did. So that's fine. So I've got a lot of time for that. Anyway, what else? Last thing then, wrap it up in 45 minutes. So there's a really interesting thing here. The paucity of Red Arrow's air safety manning was well articulated from a squadron perspective in, a, in external assurance reports and at a higher level. Uh, 22 Group in January 18, so two months before this happened, reported proactive risk management would only be realised when additional dedicated air safety resource has been identified and generated. Now, this is from a team that had a double fatality six years previous. And they're saying that um, there's an issue with the risk management on the Reds two months before this happens. Jeez, guys, come on. This is fucking, this is amateur hour now. I'm not going to get animated over this. Uh, and what it kind of says here, um, when considering the complexity of the Red Arrow's tasks, the potential for associated pressure, the articulated requirement for additional engineering personnel and a limited support from RS Campton, the panel concluded that an inability to fully manage and mitigate the associated risks could result in their safety currents. Are, really. The panel considered that for the duty holder, the person responsible for risk, for him to effectively manage air safety and fulfil his obligation to do so, both the Central Flying School and the Red Arrows, an appropriately resourced, fully qualified and experienced air safety staff was required. The panel concluded that the lack of a permanently established air safety team was another factor. So they criticised about safety and as I said, the display is more important than a life, it seems. Uh, being blunt about it, guys, because you need to be blunt about it because else people just die. Worth reading the report. I think I've pretty much covered everything there. I'm sure I've missed some bits out. I think what I'll do is I'll replace the one I did yesterday with this one. And the one I did yesterday was a bit more complex when it went into details about the actual flying. I think this is a better representation. I just want to leave this by saying um, I would not place any blame on the pilot Red 3. I think if he'd been one of my team or if I'd been flying that aircraft, I probably would have got myself into the same situation with caveat with the amount of currency and the competency levels that he had at that time um, and the, the busy nature of his day and the slight fatigue he had and everything else I think I've always said when this accident happens don't look at the point of impact go all the way back and go back uh, a few minutes or a few days and then go back a few months and then go back a few years and think what was the problem was this always going to happen and my argument was from 2011 uh, when I did my service inquiry and then Danny Stembridge did his after me, um, he'd probably say exactly the same thing, that this was probably never going to end there. This was always going to happen again. And I'm telling you now, uh, put my hand up and uh, when this happens again, come listen to this podcast. This will happen again on this team. 100 Squadron are not losing aircraft like this and they've got more of them. Uh, 736 are not having not losing aircraft like this and they've got more of them. Two very professional squadrons. I've flown with both, not as staff, but I've flown on both squadrons. Um, very professional guys, very professional squadrons. Uh, the Red Arrows is not the same. The Red Arrows is not a professional squadron. It is the it is the most dangerous squadron in the Royal Air Force. I keep saying it. Uh, people even write to me saying, well, it can't be because else they'd be stopped flying. No, no. The corporate messaging of the United Kingdom is more important than a loss of a life. So you won't see that kind of change. You'll read the report. It says, let's have a store on the aircraft, GPS, whatever it might be. 
and just check back in five years and see whether I've done. If one thing this podcast does is embarrass the Air Force enough to go to the Ministry of Defence to find the money to put those aircraft through some kind of servicing schedule at vast expense and get these things on here and prove me wrong, and prove me wrong, I will stand up and I will clap them and say, well done, honestly, because I couldn't do it when I was a requirements manager. And I'm telling you now, it's not going to happen because how many people you got to kill? That's not even written down anywhere. It's it's the balance of risk at the moment. They're mitigating against it again, and they've managed to tell themselves that they're doing everything they possibly can to uh, make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm saying that's rubbish. Uh, I'm saying it will happen again. Um, I think anyone outside of the Reds would probably agree with me. Um, I think the Reds themselves would probably be like, well, what do you want us to do, Tim? Stop the display. And I'm like, yeah, do that for a year. Stop the display. Go and do some adventure training. Go and work out what fundamentals are in the team. What what values you really have. Are you in line with the values of the service or not? Because I don't believe you are at all. I believe you shouldn't be. I mean, your motto is a clap, which is brilliant display or excellent. Some people refer to it. And that's not where the red arrows are. Now, when you watch a display, everyone would watch the red display. And there we go. That is amazing. Because it's the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? And the tip of the iceberg is all you can see. It's the stuff that's under the surface, which is bad. It's a lot better than what it was. I'm not having a huge go. It's a lot better. But you still haven't got this dedicated air safety team that should be in there. And what you should be doing with this team is having something called an operational event analysis where um, psychologists from Royal Air Force Centre of Aviation Medicine come in and they say, let's pretend you've had an accident and we're going to take you apart. Well, in fact, this is the one This is the one squad in the Royal Air Force doesn't need that, does it? Because it keeps having um, RAFCAM come and visit it because it keeps having these psychologists come and visit it because it keeps crashing airplanes for real. So it doesn't need to pretend to crash airplanes. Any other unit in the military, if you think you have uh, problems on your squadron, flight safety issues, you can write to RAFCAM, give them a call, Royal Air Force Centre of Aviation Medicine, and ask for an OEA, an Operational Event Analysis. It's a two-week study into your practices. One of the things I said in the last podcast, and I don't want to keep it too long, I always found that um, whenever we had these visits from, uh, like the visit the Reds had in January 18 from uh, Central Flying School, the Trappers visit, these are the guys responsible for not only their flight safety, but also looking at the flying training and standards on the squadron and all the paperwork. And of course, they noticed there was an issue with um, flight safety on the squadron because they didn't have anyone dedicated to the task and it's right for them to bring it up. But they didn't really find anything else wrong with the paperwork. And I think any pilot, I think if Dave Stark had been on the squadron longer, he would have looked at those PFLs, the fact you could do any one of those practice force landings and it didn't matter which one you were doing as long as you just did one. And he'd probably have broken those out into separate things like they did in 100 Squadron because he'd just come from 100 Squadron. So he knew that he should be doing more of these. That's probably why he was practicing that in the first place because he knew he's got to be good at it. And so he probably would have done that. And uh, I think he would have found that out. And that was really the job of these trappers. So trappers visit where they come and trap you. They come and fly with you. That's what Central Flying School do. Um, that's their job to go and find these things, to look at these and say, well, 100 Squadron do this differently and 736 do this differently and you guys do it differently. And when you fly in the same airplane, why is that? And they didn't do that. And my argument has always been, well, what is the point of view then? The whole point, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't tell people when you're going to go up and test them. It should be like a random drugs test. It should be random. Because when you tell people, that they're going to get drugs tested on the 1st of February. Well, no one's going to do any drugs till the 1st of February. But if you don't tell them when they're going to get drugs tested, then people are just 
not going to do drugs or they're going to take a risk, but the majority of people are going to be like, I don't know when this knock is going to happen, when the knock on the door is going to happen, I'm going to lose my job. The same thing with these visits, these 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 flight safety visits. Um, the same thing with these. It should be random. So you rock up on a squadron, you say, guys, carry on flying. I'm going to go through all your logbooks, all your paperwork, all your orders. Uh, I'm going to go through your flight kit. I'm going to make sure you're flying with the correct stuff. I'm going to watch how you plan. I'm going to come flying with you. Crack on flying. I'll jump in the jet at some point. It's all good. Don't preempt it. The difference between a boss and a flight commander is a boss will preempt it. He loves knowing when it's going to happen because he can make his squadron look really good. A flight commander wants it to be random because then we're really tested. Uh, so I need to make sure I'm good the whole time. That's the, the difference being a boss is output driven and a flight commander is more concerned with the day-to-day running of the squadron. That's the only difference. I'm not criticizing. but So these weren't random tests, unfortunately. So the Reds can make themselves look pretty good for that visit. I'm sure they did. Um, I think that's pretty much it. So what am I trying to say? Let's just cover the last thing. Two minutes, 50 minutes is nice. The the authority comments at the end, the Director General of the Defence Safety Agency makes some comments at the end. And one of the ones he says, kind of maybe a bit, he says, nevertheless, this accident serves as a reminder that to maintain a baseline of capability, it is essential to schedule a practice of core competencies. And when I kind of read that, I was like, really? Like, you've just come out with this. Now, I, I know he has to write this for everyone, but everyone knows this. The baseline is the most important thing. And we know this because we understand what foundations mean. You can build a house. If you build a house on sand, it collapse. And that's exactly what the reds are. Uh, if you be- if you build it on a solid foundation, then it stays stable. And go and look at the people involved in 736 and 100 Squadron, the pilots on those two squadrons and the level of experience they have. And there's a lot of them, solid foundation. Look at the reds. Again, very experienced pilots, but they haven't got the support. And that's my argument. They don't have the support. They're constantly having to try and do all the duties and do the display and do all the PR stuff themselves. And my argument is just make it easy for them. Treat them like the athletes they should be. Literally say to them, right, I'm taking everything off you. I want you now just concentrate, concentrate on your flying and your, your safety and your competencies and making sure you are the best squadron in the Royal Air Force. The, the best, because right now you're the worst. And that's it. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Tim Davies, Fast Performance.